Hello, I'm Doug Siegel, and welcome to The Breakfast Club, a podcast where we take comedians and other famous people and bribe them into opening up over the breakfast of their choice. Today, I'm having breakfast with Bethany Black. Beth is a stand-up comedian, an actor, and an activist. You may have seen her as 474 in Doctor Who, or her history-making turn as the first trans woman to play a trans woman on British TV in Russell T. Davis's Cucumber. Beth has had an extraordinary life, and as you're about to hear, has overcome colossal calamities to get where she is today. As usual, we jump straight into the conversation, talking about school days. I was like, this is school squat, so it was my job to go in and to go and get the big reel-to-reel tapes. Reel-to-reel set, tapes? Set them up, yeah. That's so that amazing. When we did the long and audiovisual French. <laughs> <laughs> my year was the first year at school to do computer studies. Wow. And we had um, an hour a week yeah. allotted to us to dial in on a modem to this uh, mainframe computer, which they took us to see. And this computer was in a room 30 foot by 30 foot. Yeah. Just full of valves and tape to tape reels and stuff, and and it was probably less powerful than my iPhone. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, less powerful. <laughs> um, this is pre kind of uh, transistors as well, just but well, pre. What was it? Because they managed to send the space shuttle, uh, they managed to send Apollo Eleven to the moon and get it back with less power than you have in a Commodore Six. Or did they? Well, that's my favourite conspiracy. <laughs> is that Kubrick filmed it, but he was such a perfectionist, he did it on the moon. <laughs> That is my favourite conspiracy of all time. Oh yes, could I get a uh, pot of tea? Pot of tea yeah. Excellent choice. Anyone need to come back with food? I've been here for ages, but you take. No, sure. You I will have the vegetarian breakfast, whatever that one is. Yeah, yeah. There's two. Yeah, there's I'll a vegan veggie. one. I'll have the veggie breakfast actually. And can I get some halloumi on that as well, please? Excellent choice. So you're 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 um, you're un unvegan. Yeah, unvegan. Let's talk yes. about that. I'd like the Scottish breakfast, please. Yeah, you're vegan. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's Thank, it. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was going to be one of my questions because um, well, everyone likes to talk about it, and it's I think like, I I know that the times that I've mentioned that I was vegan for a very long time, and then and then and now not has caused me so much shit on social media. Really? People get really angry. Has Michael Lake got really angry? Uh, no, I haven't told him. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'd be no, terrified. That's it. No, I'm avoiding telling him, and I've sort of avoided... Uh, I, I pretended I still was when I was with Andrew O'Neill. Because Andrew O'Neill um, and, and Michael Lake are the head of the vegan mafia. They are, yeah, yeah. Are they like and kind of popes or cardinals? Yeah, or I think so. I think so. It's They're, they're right up there. They're generals in that. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, the brigadiers of the political correctness. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I was doing a gig last Christmas with uh, Andrew and I went to order some food and he went, oh, this is vegan. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and it wasn't what I wanted. No, the reason that I'm, I mean, I'm, Quite a lot of the time I am vegan, um, and other times I'm not, and it's entirely down to the fact that having a partner with various different medical health issues... Well, that must make it so difficult. Means, yeah, it means it's difficult. It means that often I'd end up having to make two meals, and yeah. don't 
always have the time to do that. No, this is what people don't appreciate about our lifestyle. Yeah. And how self-indulgent it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so yes, yeah, so it just makes it, it just made it that much more difficult. And Sonna and I have been together for about six months when I went, do you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to reintroduce egg into my diet and then, and then, um, and then milk. And it's not done my digestion any good. No, I can imagine it wouldn't. But, however, it's, um, you know, it's not possible with a variety of health conditions mm. to to be vegan. So it was it was one of us. <laughs> one <laughs> of us had to go. The diet or the girlfriend had to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, and you know, reasonable I, choice, I feel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and so many people do not yeah. understand that at all. Besides, because tofu is never going to shag you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, uh, and and yeah, it doesn't taste the same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's just one of those things that's like it's it's not particularly um, you know, it's it's something that I do, you know, animal welfare and environmental stuff is stuff that I really do care about. Not to the extent that I'll not to the extent that I'll be a cunt about it in public. <laughs> <laughs> you should be doing that. Uh, like, oh, I hate that. I hate people trying to do that because, to be honest, with stuff like that, it's mostly none of your business. And the other thing is, when you, like, I've been a vegetarian since I was eight. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, my parents, in one of those classical parenting moves, went, well, if you're going to be a vegetarian, you're going to have to learn to cook for yourself. So I did. Um, life, life skill and improved karma in one yeah, fell swoop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then when I was in my early 20s, just before I got clean and sober, I decided to start eating meat again for a bit and just didn't enjoy it. I just went, this isn't That's interesting. And, um, oh yeah, I nearly killed myself with a bacon butty on the first day. <laughs> now, I, I was a vegetarian for 10 years. And I decided, and it's a long story, and we can talk about that perhaps later if you want, but... I decided I was going to go back to eating meat. Yeah. And I thought, I knew it was going to be a digestive disaster. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, what's the thing that's least like meat I can eat? <laughs> so I had a McDonald's. <laughs> it was horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That was, I think, like, my third thing that I ate was, um, was when I decided to eat meat again, was, like, a Burger King. It was Burger King waffle with bacon on it. And I was just like... This is, there's no flavour to this, it's just salt <laughs> and fat and nothing else. What the hell is this? And I couldn't eat. And, Sincerely um, yours, The Breakfast Club. Cheers. I have a theory that bacon yeah. is proof that there is no God. Yeah. Because why would you create a universe and a bunch of admittedly arguing religions, yeah. but in which all of them you forbid the eating of something you've made so delicious. Yeah, yeah. Why would, why would any sentient being doing that? But perhaps you're the proof. Perhaps yeah. early man was vegan. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, thank you. Thank you very much. But yeah, so I, I, I sort of, I tried that. I, I, I decided to persevere with it and I ate meat for about 18 months. And I ate all sorts of stuff that I'd never had before. The stuff that you don't, stuff that you start eating as a teenager, <laughs> that you never had as a kid. So I went through that, and I did that for about eighteen months, maybe two years, and then I went, no, this really isn't for me. I became vegetarian again, and then very shortly after that, I became vegan, and um, have been vegan for about eight or 
nine years. Oh, right. Why don't you tell us where we are and what this place is? We are in the coffee pot in uh, the Northern Quarter. Um, it's the new one, which is on Oldham Street, because the old one, there's a big picture on the wall in here, which is just around the corner, which is just on the corner from where I used to live. Um, I used to live on Dale Street, which is like right in the middle of Piccadilly. And um, I love this. I used to love that other restaurant. It's one of those ones that was a greasy spoon, which in the early 90s, when the whole Manchester thing sort of sprung up, was taken over by people who were sort of part of that scene. So it's always sort of like had a bit of an artsy, musical sort of. It's where the cool kids breakfast. Yeah, it is. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to see Doug. Where can I take him? That he'll fit in. That he's hipster beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Won't look out of place. Anywhere in the northern <laughs> Fine. <laughs> awesome. Mm. Um, it's also the place where, the old one is a place where I was walking past one day and saw Tom Hardy sat there for a oh, really? scene for a film. No idea what the film was. I've never seen it, but just saw him sat there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like... Oh, That's me, thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, breakfast has arrived. Breakfast has arrived. Uh, do you want to talk us through what you've gone for? Yeah, I've gone for the uh, vegetarian breakfast as opposed to the vegan breakfast, uh, which is hash brown beans, egg, tomato, vegetarian sausages of the good kind, not the kind which are just like mashed potato and peas. That's wrong. Is, yeah, which is terribly wrong, and with a couple of slices of fried halloumi on the top of it. Because you know we are in the northern quarter, and you can't. Like, it had to be either halloumi or avocado. Possibly both. <laughs> Possibly both. The, the hips, the superfoods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas I've gone from the full Scottish yeah. um, because I don't like my arteries. Yeah. So here's a question. I think yeah. it's an interesting question to ask yeah. a veggie. Yeah. Every single, every single fried breakfast comes with a grilled tomato. Yeah. Do you eat it? Uh, depends. Oh. It depends. Sometimes I don't. And sometimes I get to the end and go, I'm still hungry. I'll have it. But nobody chooses to eat. No, Why do they do it? it? Why do they do it? I don't know. I, it's, it's one of those things, it's a tradition. Like, you know, shoving kids up chimneys and chasing foxes on horseback <laughs> and shit. Um, oh, Dennis is going to be coming back post-breakfast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, happy days are here again, yeah, aren't they? Great. Yeah. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? It is. It is. It's absolutely terrifying. A year ago, going, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to leave the EU, and Trump's not going to be president, and all of those things that we were saying. And now here we are, one year later, we go, oh, fuck. Sometimes it feels like we've kind of slipped through into a parallel dimension I think, where everything's yeah. upside down. Yeah, I think we have. It's like, yeah, it's bizarre world, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's one of those... I'm, I'm fairly sure that I've slipped into a parallel dimension at some point in the past. I've been reading some really interesting stuff about that. Um, about how... Uh, about, you know, the, the fifth flatmate in The Young Ones? Yes! Okay, so... Yeah. I'll, 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 do, I'll do a voiceover. Yeah. You know the legendary cult 80s TV show, The Young Ones, about four student flatmates, Rick, Neil, Vivian and Mike, right? Well, it transpires there is actually a secret fifth housemate. Yep. If you study the first six episodes of the series super closely, you can spot a person whose hair completely covers their face in the background of some scenes. Such as to the left, where Neil gets hit by Vivian with a kettle in the episode entitled Bomb. The rumours of a mysterious fifth housemate have been the subject of fan speculation on the internet for years. In 2016, journalist Peter Farquhar sent members of the cast and crew email inquiries about this unnamed character. 
The writer, Ben Elton, replied, saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, I'm afraid. But Jeff Posner, one of the directors of the series, replied, saying that he and Paul Jackson thought it would be fun to have some ghostly figure in the background of some scenes that was never explained or talked about. It's very clearly someone living in the house, although the housemates aren't aware of it. When Neil tells the housemates he's off to kill himself, Rick says, well, that's put the rent up by a third. There's a link to Peter Farquhar's article about it on the website, www.breakfastclubpodcast.co.uk. This genuine factual Easter egg that no one noticed for two decades links into a bigger conspiracy theory about timelines and groups of people remembering events that the history books say didn't happen. It was dubbed the Mandela Effect by self-described paranormal consultant Fiona Brew after she and a group of other people online were baffled to find that Nelson Mandela, who they distinctly remember dying in jail in the 1980s, was president of South Africa for most of the 90s and actually died in 2013. Most psychologists put this phenomenon down to a collective false memory, shaped by similar factors affecting multiple people, like social reinforcement of incorrect memories, or false news reports and misleading photographs influencing the formation of memories based on them. Personally, I think it's people that don't keep up with current events. Anyway, I've put a bunch of information on it, including some fun quizzes, up on the website. So do pop on over and have a look. There's, there's a fantastic article that I read about people who claim that that is proof that we have slided into a parallel universe because before a certain point, they were never there. We've all seen them hundreds and hundreds of times. But they've been inserted by the schism in the timescape. Yeah, we've ended up in a parallel universe where they were always there. And so for most of us, Something has happened that's come and shifted us into a different parallel universe. Exactly the same with um, the Berenstain Bears, which was a big, um, which is a children's book that was really popular in the States that most people assume was called the Berenstain Bears. And, and called it the Berenstain Bears for years, and now you can find no trace of it ever being called the Berenstain Bears. In this universe. Yeah, in this universe. And so there's this theory that we have slid between. Uh, between universes. Surely that would mean that it's only certain people that yeah. have slid. Yeah, which again makes sense. Yeah. That would make sense. Which again, it does seem sense. a bit odd. Uh, in an idea of infinite bubble universes that are, you know. However, if we consider those of us that are going, but Trump. Yeah. Brexit, this isn't right. Does that just mean that everybody who's a progressive left winger is in intrinsically a transformational traveller? Uh, only the ones who ended up in this universe. Oh, right, so there are still others back there? Still others back there, yeah, because it's like parallel universes where everything has happened. Everything happens at the same time. Um, everything that has ever happened and will ever happen is all happening right now. In that sort of Dr. Manhattan, can yeah. see the future, can see the past, and see everything at the same time kind of way. So why do we remember the old one, then? And why don't we remember, we remember it always having been this way? Somewhere, this because, is because we've accidentally ended up in the wrong timeline. We've ended up in the darkest timeline. Every time you do anything, it goes and creates separate timelines. Yes. But does that mean we've swapped? It means that somewhere there is uh, you and me sat in a in a coffee pot in a different dimension, a different universe, sat there going. Thankfully, <laughs> after the Brexit vote went the right way, and and Donald Trump died when an albatross attacked his hair, everything's okay now. That's amazing. 
has to be fair, is this breakfast. This is awesome. Yeah, it's a really good breakfast. Yeah, so my Scottish one came with um, a, a tatty scone, which is a weird choice of, um, of name, really, because it's neither tatty nor a scone. Um, haggis, obviously. Black pudding. Hash brown. Traditional Scottish has hash brown. Um, beans, sausage, egg, and uh, black pudding. I remember Burns' poem about the hash brown. <laughs> Traditional o- Burns. Otimorous potatoey beastie. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Again, the parallel universe, presumably there is somewhere where quilted men address yeah. the hash brown on the yeah, 25th of January every year. Mm. Yeah. So if you've been named vegetarian at eight, yeah. one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was, um, what was breakfast like at home? And presumably there is a schism for you, aged eight with breakfast. Um, yeah, it basically became, Sunday breakfast became um, beans on toast with egg and mushrooms. And that was it. For quite a few years, until suddenly, Linda McCarthy of Gwon started making things. And um, is that actually marked in the vegan calendar as some sort of, <laughs> sort of remembrance vegetarian day, yeah. a vegetarian holy day, yeah. Friday and holiday? Uh, it should be. It's like you know the miracle of Robonica when the battery power wasn't long enough to last a full day, but it lasted for six days anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, Which is a smartphone holiday. Okay, one of the questions. I hold very strong beliefs on this, since we're talking about quasi-religions. Yeah. I have very strong beliefs on what what colour sauce you should have in your breakfast goods. Right. Okay. And you, interestingly, you're, you're, you're in fact sauce by, aren't you? I use both, but yeah. It depends what I'm having it for, because normally they put the mushrooms in the wrong place on the plate. Right. Because mushrooms go with brown sauce. Yes, obviously. Yeah. As does egg, interestingly. Okay. Yeah. Whereas sausages go with red sauce. Interesting. These types, particularly. Now. There are other types that go much better with brown sauce. Here's the thing. Here's the thing is I feel that you've completely and utterly validated my uh, my worldview on this because this is what I maintain. Red sauce is fine. You can have it with certain foods. That's fine. But if you were, and again, it's only how it applies to men. If you are male, mm-hmm. bacon and sausages must have brown sauce, not red. Only, only ladies can justify having red sauce. You've validated my argument now. Yeah. So, sauce quiz. Yeah. I know because we both used to work at the Telegraph at the same time and arrive at the same time in the Telegraph canteen. I know what colour sauce Boris Johnson has on his bacon sandwiches. What colour do you think he has? Does he have red, brown, or none? Red Go for red. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Obviously, 
because of the nature of what we do, Sunday mornings are things that happen to other people. So our Sunday morning is really Monday morning. Yeah. What's your Monday morning breakfast at home with Sam? Um, depending on how busy we've been at the weekend, it can be anything from just like a regular cocoa pop breakfast. I occasionally do a full English, which she enjoys, and occasionally she'll do uh, Swedish waffles. Wow! Which is a great brand. Yeah, we got a, a, a waffle iron off her, off her mum as our housewarming present. Fantastic. So is that a big thing in... in um, yeah, they're different than Belgian waffles as well. They're a lot thinner. Okay. They're, they're sweet waffles, but they are... They're about the size, about, about yay big, sort of heart shaped, like, like four heart shapes. Yes, together. yes, I've seen those, yes. Um, like a very large communion wafer. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> like that. Yeah, and yeah, flour and milk, and they're, and they're kind of like a, a bit like a pancake, but you know, and then fried and served up with cream and. Uh, yeah, fried in our waffle iron with, with butter, Amazing. obviously, because there's nothing that doesn't taste better if it's fried in butter. For um, sure. I remember the first time I saw a, a packet for a steamer, and I went, there's nothing on that that would not be better deep fried. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, oh, you're going to steam some broccoli, are you? That, how delightful. That's going to taste fucking horrible. Um, deep fried in butter. Fantastic. Um, yes, fried in butter, whipped cream, uh, jam, and strawberries. Interesting. Interesting. I've never been keen personally on a, um, on, a sweet on, 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 a, on a sweet breakfast. Sincerely mm. yours, um, the breakfast club. One of the interesting, because obviously because of the Doctor Who uh, thing, people regularly ask me, you know, where would you travel in time? And they always go, oh, really far into the future. And they always go, oh, really? really? Why is that? I go, because I'm not a straight white man. Yes, good point well made. <laughs> would I Very travel? good point. Why would I travel backwards in time? That's <laughs> that interesting because I literally, that was literally my thought process was, you know, well, I could go here and here and these, these specialist skills I have, but that's because I'm a straight white man yeah, and yeah. therefore have all that privilege. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, you would get, you'll be fine going back in time, provided you could avoid getting some of the nastier illnesses, or provided you could avoid killing everybody with the illnesses that you took with you. Of course. Um, you know, um, yeah, it's... That's the insidious thing I think about privilege is, and why... It's so important to listen to somebody when they say, no, no, that's just your privilege. Yeah, yeah. Is that is invisible. It's totally... We all, we all have our own yeah, privileges. Yeah, I do. Yes. I'm totally aware of mine, and I, and I will regularly go, oh, shit, I thought, can you, can, if, if I have, will you please tell me? And, you know, yes. um, a big chunk of my show this year was about that, was about setting it up, first of all, because I was going to have to talk about privilege and, and talk about um, the audience's privilege and how people will worry that they've said something offensive to me um, and overthink it and get really panicked about it and I wanted to talk about that in a way that was fun but in a way that didn't alienate an audience and in order to do that and not alienate an audience I had to before that talk about times that I've done it I had to go and put myself in that position I had to go and spend 10 minutes going this is the times when I thought I'd been racist and it turns out that I was racist and as long as I felt my guilt about that and moved through it and 
tried not to do it again, that was a learning experience, yes. and it's something that I can look at and go, oh, you know. I, I thought it was a fabulous show. Thank I really you. enjoyed it, and the reviews were great. Yeah, things are looking up. I had a very good Edinburgh this year, which made such mm. a lovely difference <laughs> after previous years when I've arrived home at, at the end of August and just gone, Oh God, I have nothing. I've totally ruined everything. It's really interesting how kind of around the 30th of August, every single comedian just has this thousand yard stare and empty soul and pocket. Yeah, um, my last Edinburgh experience, yeah, it was absolutely the worst experience of my life. I did, um, I went up there with my second show. Because your first show did really, really well. My first show did well, yeah. I didn't get much of an audience, but I got really good reviews. Yeah. And uh, I got loads of attention from various different media and, and stuff like that. And I really wanted to capitalise on the success of that. And I came back and did a second show, which was appallingly uh, bad. And it was really terrible. And I was chatting with Arthur Smith over the fringe, and he said, well, what did you learn from that? And I said, do you know what? Honestly, I can't even think what I learned from that. <laughs> other than if you discover at the end of May that you are a drug addict and need to sort that out don't try and write a show about it and all the things that you've learned between then and August because it's not enough time and you're mental yes because I had no I was like I just uh, just got into recovery I'd spent like three weeks detoxing at the beginning at the beginning of April and it's far too short a time yeah yeah so it was May I'd kind of already come up with a show which was about my struggles with alcohol and struggles with relationships and then got to Got to yeah, it was like thirty first of March, and we I just got the keys for a new flat, the flat on Dale Street. Um, just moved in there. I just finished doing a PR job and have been paid really well. Um, I've been a professional stand up for about a year and really wasn't earning enough money to be a professional stand up. And um, and I just got and done a job where I was getting paid a thousand pounds a week, and I'd done three months on that, and I was like great, I can just do what I do for the rest of the year and not have to worry about it. And just as we went and, and I got paid on that day, I've been waiting to get paid so that I could go and pay my car tax and my car insurance because I knew that they were up at the end of the month. I got pulled over by the police on Deansgate as we were going to drop off the keys and the only reason I was in the car was because when we got to the flat that we were leaving, one of my flatmates who was supposed to be in wasn't in, so I ended up having to drive. I uh, got pulled over by the police and got off his motorcycle and said, to get out of the car, show me your license and all that. Right, okay, you, um, we're pulling you over because your car tax is out of date. Now, I'm just going to have to do a quick run to check that it's insured. If it is, then you can go on and we'll, I'll write you up a ticket for the, for the car tax. Uh, you can pay that and you know, you'll get a couple of points on your license as well. Okay. And then he runs it through the computer and he goes, right, it turns out your car's not insured either because my ta car tax and my insurance both ran out at the same time, which was the end of the previous month. And I got confused. I thought it was the end. I thought, I need to do it at the end of March, not the beginning of March. And so they seized my car there and then on the side of the road. So yes, they went and took my, took my car away. So you got everything out of your car. And I went, yeah, yeah, And as they drove away with my car, like, it was, in fact, it was after that, I went on my way home, bought a PS3 with the money that I'd just been paid. I was like, fantastic, get that. If I, if I can't drive, I'm at least going to race it. cars on screen. Yeah, exactly. Got that and a copy of, uh, yeah, Grand Theft Auto. And, <laughs> and then spent the rest of the day shooting police officers. And it was fine. Right? And I got home and I went off to sleep. And I woke up on April 1st into the worst panic attack 
that I've ever had. I just woke up thinking I was about to die. My heart was pounding out of my chest. Um, that horrible, like almost hangover type, oh my god, what am I done feeling sort of came through. As I realised that there was a small plastic bag in the driver's side door of my car, which had um, several grams of cocaine and a load of tablets of ecstasy. And I was like, oh shit, it did find those then. And that's prison. Yes, that's absolutely, that's, yeah. That's absolutely, that's prison. Um, there was enough there for it to, and they were in separate bags, so it was enough oh, to so look in all that supply. Yeah. yeah. And I just panicked, and I spent a full week trying to figure out what to do. Like, do you go and collect your car? Do you just, like, abandon it? Do you just oh. fail to turn up? What are they going to do? If I turn up and get it, are they going to arrest me when I get Please, there? please tell me that there was an elaborate kind of spy-type break into the pound with you sort of suspended. <laughs> suspended from a wall. Yeah. 11 style. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, we're going to need a wheelman. <laughs> wasn't the coolest thing about it was that the operation in which they go and seize cars that don't have car tax is called Operation Wolverine. Fantastic! Know, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, why didn't they choose that for like Operation U Tree? Yes. You know, change it around a bit. You know, they give really elaborate names to really crappy uh, police. Yeah, police operations. Police yes. operations. So I go in to go and get my car and realise that they haven't found it. But by that point, I'd already sort of recognised that I've got a problem because as soon as I figured that out that morning, I'm like, shit, shit, what do I do? Got all of the drugs that I had stashed around the house, I had all sorts of little bits and pieces, and just sort of piled it up on the table in the lounge and just went, am I a drug dealer? Right, <laughs> right okay, yeah, this is the first time I've been forced to sort of examine it. That, that's interesting with the stark reality of the truth of your life sitting there on a table looking at it. That must yeah, have been quite a revelationary moment. Yeah, it was. Rather than sort of like being hidden around places, you know, just sort of like a couple of pills here and, you know, some white powder there and all of this stuff. Suddenly just like with it all out, in a sh- out emptied the shoebox which had that, <laughs> which had that along with packets of sugar and all yeah. sorts of stuff and just cleared all the stuff that wasn't drugs out of the way and looked at it on the table and just went, shit, right, okay, I've got to get rid of all of this because... Obviously, the police could come bursting through the door at any minute if they found the drugs that were in the car. So I flushed it all away and um, immediately went and phoned up my friends who were recovering drug addicts. What do I do? And they went, get yourself down to an AA meeting for one starting in 15 minutes. Like, really? From your front door. Go there now. And I was like, put the phone down. I went, yeah, that's a really good idea. Because, if, because if the police turn up and they find that, then me going to AA meeting shows that I'm at least trying to get that look good in court. So the thing that turned your life around was looking for an alibi. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. Amazing. It was just like, it was that thing of going, right, okay, how can I minimise this? And so I went, in, you know, how can I minimise this? How can I make it look like I'm trying my best if I, if I end up in front of the judge? And so I went, yeah, and that was it. And I haven't touched drugs since then. Um, you know, not recreationally anyway. I've had to happen for various accidents. Well, I remember when stuff. you had, I think you'd broken your leg yeah. or something. And you were kind of very upset because they were, they were, they were insisting that you had morphine. And, you know... That yeah. must have been very difficult. Yeah, it was. That was because um, at that point it was like I, that was the first time that I'd had a serious injury and needed it. And I spoke to a lot of people who just went, "Listen, we need to have morphine to get through this. This is the most pain-. like massively surprised that they'd managed to get me off the floor with my foot pointing in entirely the wrong direction and get my foot pointing in the this, right this direction. This was a rollerblading. Uh, roller so skating. Roller skating. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, on quad skates. Rollerblades are the defense. <laughs> you know, you know how skiers yeah. hate snowboarders. Yeah. Um, same thing. And 
I don't really. No, I, uh, uh, so I, yeah, I, I, was, I was practicing roller derby. I was, I was skating with someone who I didn't like from the very first moment I saw them, who knew, do you know, have you ever done that where you meet someone and you recognise them from being in an audience? No, that's never happened. You recognise them from being in an audience and they sort of try and make friends with you without ever letting on that they've seen you before. Oh, that's really properly creepy, isn't it? Yeah, it it is, it is. And this girl had done that and she just started doing roller derby uh, at the place where I was learning. And, um, like, I knew I'd spotted her in various different gigs that I'd done before. And she turned up to this thing, and then every time... Do you think the got... reason she turned up to this was because she was stalking you? Possibly, yeah, yeah, possibly. And That's then, quite a frightening and then, thought, Yeah, it? and then kept trying, to get, kept trying to get paired up with me. Um, and I managed to avoid it every single time, apart from this one day. And I was like, we don't want to be paired up with her. Please don't pair me up with her. And we were like the last, if you know when you're the last to be picked at anything. Like, yes, that's the, look at me, that's my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine too, mine too. And this was the first time I hadn't always been the last to get picked. And this was the first time that I was the last to get picked. I'm like, oh. And so she paired up with me. And like, she was the sort of person who I'd be having a conversation with somebody. Just like you and I are chatting now. And if she was sat on that table, she would just suddenly go and break in with something that she thought was relevant to what we were talking about. So she's trying to insert herself into it? Yeah, yeah, constantly trying to do that. And we ended up skating. We ended up doing this practice thing while we were practicing whips, where you go transfer your momentum to somebody else. Yes, yes. And she kept getting overexcited um, and really leaning into it. Because what you're supposed to do is just bring your arm across your chest because that's the way to... To transfer the kinetic energy and propel the other person forward. Propel the other person forward, yeah. Um, And if you lean into it, then you start to go and... There's a very real risk that you'll start to go and pull them over your skates oof, as you're And she clipped my skates a couple of times trying to do that because it's just trying to put too much speed into it. And I said, no, no, you, not, you, you need to stop doing that. She's like, oh, okay. And then she, you know, she was okay for another couple and then she'd get overconfident again and do it again. I was like, no, seriously. Like that, oh my God, the fact dangerous. that you can see this coming. Yeah, and we went around a third time and as we got to the, as we just got to the corner, she went and pulled me and pulled me so hard and kicked out with her leg she was trying to do. So I just spun sideways, caught the, so my wheels are going against the grain. I can hear the scraping of them against the, against oh. the floor. I get my toe caught behind my heel and fall and go to, go to take a knee, which is the safest thing you can do because you've added. And I got my toe caught behind my heel and it just twisted my foot in its Ooh. wrong direction. I felt my tibia go. Oh my goodness. Uh, and it kind of went like, like as if it was three separate snaps, which just snapped into three tips. And then, um, and then I realised that I had like a quarter of a second where I was, all of my weight was on my fibula, which oh is my not goodness, a bearing bone. Yeah. And then I felt that go. And I just hit the deck and was lying there screaming, going, I broke my leg, I broke my leg, I broke my fucking leg, I broke my leg, I broke my leg. And, um, and I had and then the x-rays, which I can give you one for the website if you want. Yes, please, uh, yes. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure our <laughs> listener would love to see that. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and on the x-ray, there's, um, yeah, you can see it's a double spiral fracture. So it kind of oh, breaks around itself. Oh, my goodness. Because what's happened is the bone has just been twisted. It's like if you've got two twigs and just twist them. Yes, and just roll them against roll each other. Roll them against each other, yeah. Oh. And so that's what had happened. And I was lying there. Um, where we practice is up in Ardwick. So it's near to um, Manchester City's home ground. It's up in City. And so as a result, um, yeah, I'd, it was about half past 
five when I fell and broke my broke my leg, which was just as the final whistle had gone on a home game. Oh my god! So I was lying there for over an hour waiting for the ambulance. Oh my god! And you know, because I'm a comedian and because of what I do, I knew that you know you just keep being silly in that situation. Yes. Just, <laughs> just keep thinking about how much this could turn into material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and as people are skating past, going, "You're not trying hard enough. If you're not screaming, you're not trying." <laughs> what slackers! <laughs> if you've not broken anything. You know, um, and it was my mate Jen's birthday as well, so every time she went past, I shouted out, Happy birthday! But that sort of started quite an interesting period for you, didn't it? Yeah. It was almost kind of uh, you couldn't really write it, it was like a no. journey from darkness through to, to light, wasn't it? That was at the point at which things had already got as badly uh, gone as badly as they could, really, at that point. Really? I'd, I'd had I'd had a full year of going, well, this is the worst year of my life. I don't see how anything can get any worse. And then it did. And then just one thing after another did. Um, you know, I it started. I got uh, the part, Roseanne, who I was with when I lived uh, in the city centre here, we'd moved out of town. Um, I, after my Edinburgh that I did then, it was absolutely yes. terrible, came back and uh, the landlord had gone and pasted a big sign across our door saying, we believe this property has been abandoned, all the electricity and water has been cut Oh my God. Um, and we then struggled with getting, with paying bills and stuff like that for the next couple of months and then had to move out. We moved into a new place and down in Victoria Park, uh, just down in Russia. And we were there for about six months. And, and then I came home just before Sanna and I were, uh, Sanna and I, Roseanne and I, were, um, we were planning to get married. We have been engaged for about 18 months and we were planning to get married that October. And I got home, and from a week away, I've been away doing a week of gigs. I've done like media. I've had a fantastic time down at um, Camden Crawl. I've had a weekend of really good gigs. Things were really starting to go my way. I was starting to get booked for things that were that were paying decent money, and the right people were seeing me. And I was managing to get a really good name for myself. And I came back, and she was waiting at the front door for me, which was odd. And we went up to our flat and sat down. And she said, I'm, I, "This isn't going to work." You and I both want very different things. This is goodness me. Our futures don't match, so I think we should probably end it. And I remember being sat there going, Right, no, no, right, there's nothing we can do about it. She goes, No, I've thought long and hard about this. This is, I was like, Right, okay. She went, Don't worry, I'll sleep on the couch. And I went, We've got the rest of our lives to not sleep next to each other. Come on. Yes. Just one last night. Yes. And I've been waiting for this for, for two Ooh. weeks whilst I've been on the road. And we just and so we slept together that night and it was just like when you come down from an ecstasy come down it was that horrible horrible empty pit of your stomach all of the serotonin that you have all the serotonin that you've ever had has now disappeared from you and you don't think you're ever going to be able to be happy again but you can't sleep and you can't wake up and you're exhausted and it was like that and and yeah and and so that sort of started it that was like May of 20. Uh, 2011. Oh, that was quite a long That's a longer period of time yeah. than I'd remembered it being. Yeah. God, that was a horrible dark tunnel, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. And that was the start of it. And then from that, it just got worse. I ended up moving in with a bunch of comics who were great. And then, um, you know, there was little bits and pieces around that time. Actually, my life was starting to... 
I made a lot about the bad stuff. But I, I had a lot of good times in that time as well. I made some really good friends. I got a lot better with uh, my mental health. Got a lot better because of my sobriety, and, and yes. I really dealt with that and was sort of on that all the time. And like that had happened, I ended up sharing this uh, flat with uh, my mates Ben Schofield and his girlfriend Rebecca and Sully O'Sullivan. Um, and then just after Christmas that year, I uh, nearly bled to death in the shower. Again, is, I remember you, you, you are quite accident prone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, be yeah. fair. Yeah, ridiculously accident prone. I, uh, I managed to knock a uh, glass containing two toothbrushes that no one had any idea who any of them had belonged to that had been in our house since we'd moved in, as far as I could tell. Um, and I, yeah, <coughs> slashed a vein in my ankle, and I've got, because I've got low blood pressure, it's basically zoom as all of your body, yeah. yeah. As all the blood, yeah, as all the blood fell to the bottom of my body, didn't have enough pressure to push it back up into my heart, and it all just came out of my ankle. Um, yeah, and like ne- very nearly died. And on, that was like the 27th of December, and then yeah, and then after that, things just went from bad to worse. Got into 2012 and I was like right this is going to be my year everything's going to go I was planning to go back and do an Edinburgh Fringe show and go well you know, this is this is what's got, this is what's gone on and I've written well, I was like I'm going to do a show which is just I've got an hour I've got a joke that I can tell which allows me to go into loads of different stories that I can then come back to right. so I can go and position it like sort of where it's just me telling this like almost throwaway joke uh-huh. um but in, with, in, interspersed with these episodes in your life. Yeah, where I start to talk about that and go, oh, this happened, and this yeah. happened, and then go from one story to another, and then come back, and then finish that. It's a lovely show. structure. So, yeah, so it's that Billy Connolly-style structure of yeah. an hour-long show, and I was like, I had this written. And I did it at the Edinburgh, at the Glasgow Comedy Festival in the February, and I was going, do you know what, what? I'm going to just work really hard at this. I'm going to sit and do all this stuff. I'm going to really go for it. I'm going to be able to earn enough money to do all this stuff. Um, oh yeah, because my car caught fire as well. I always forget to mention that. My car caught fire in the... I, I got dumped in the May. My car caught fire in uh, August. I then, I'd then i moved in with the other people by that point. And h- how you manage to set up... Ca- how a diesel car manages to catch That's fire impressive. is... Yeah, yeah, it's almost impossible. This was after it had broken down uh, right on a blind bend on the Snake Pass. Oh my God! Um, and I got it home. Managed to drive it, managed to get it home. And then it got home and, and just... And smoke coming out from under the bonnet, and I lifted the bonnet. It's like, oh, right, okay, well, that's that car then. Um, yeah, and then bought another car that was a total lemon. And um, yeah, so like, nearly bled to death just after Christmas. Then uh, in the February of that year, I did the first run through of the new of the new show. Um, and on my way back from that, I found out that my AA sponsor had uh, cancer. Um, and then the next day, I found out my mate Tony had died. And um, then I developed glandular fever that then developed into ME. And then, um, as I was starting to get better from that, uh, Linda, my AA sponsor, died. And on the same day that she died, my mate Mark, who got sober at the same time as me, who'd been, become really good mates with, had also died. Found out within like 10 minutes of each other. Like, I turned up to my Thursday home group AA meeting. And as I got there, like I, I sat down and was just listening, and people started talking about how Mark had died, and I was like, "Which Mark?" And then, as they sort of spoke more about it, it became clear which one. Mark. Sat there and burst into tears, and my mate Catherine just sort of came over and sort of grabbed me by the arm and just went, "Listen, can you just come outside." And so I took me outside and went, "I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but I'm afraid Linda's just died." And oh, it was just like, "Just hammer blow off the hammer blow, isn't it?" Yeah, it was, and. 
yeah, uh, that happened. Um, I got dumped again. Um, a couple of weeks after that, then I fell and broke my coccyx. And then I'd recovered from that and was skating and then fell and broke my leg. And that led me up to that led me up to Christmas of 2012. Um, yeah, and on the well, up to November of 2012. And on the 11th of November, I broke my leg. Um, oh, the, the other thing that I didn't mention in that was on the 31st of October, when I was recovering from having like the broken coccyx, I was lying in bed and uh, went on Facebook and did that stupid thing when you're feeling sorry for yourself on your anniversary and, oh, and, and, no. and the day that you were supposed to be getting married oh, no. to go and have a look, have a look what your ex is up to now. Never do that. No, I know. I went onto Facebook and uh, found that she got married to someone who oh. I absolutely detested. Oh. It was a complete arsehole. Um, yeah. Um, and, yeah, just just one thing after another. So I ended up, like, uh, yeah, broke my leg, ended up in bed for, like, two months, and my kitten fell out of a window and died. Oh, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, after that, my first... I, I spent that entire time when I from when I broke my leg until just after Christmas desperately trying to stop people from letting the girl who broke my leg come and see me because yes. she started messaging me loads oh, and so I did stuff but I kept having to say to people I was like if you're coming over to my house if you're coming over to visit me please don't, don't bring, bring her don't bring her like just don't let her know that you're coming just don't bring her at all and she kept sort of like sending me stuff and like messages and I ended up having to like block her on all social media formats and then I turned up at where we used to practice to have a meeting with some people because I was doing a lot of like non-skating official type yeah. stuff and got there and like she came over to me it was like a week after Christmas she was like hey how are you doing I was like not not, not very well please 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 go away and I couldn't move around too much so I was kind of stuck with her she said, oh so what have you been up to I went oh, I've not been up to anything I've been in bed you, do you remember you, you've basically taken taken my life away yeah. from me do you, remember when you, do you remember when you broke my leg yeah I've not done anything since then I've been like lying in bed I've had to cancel all of my gigs I'm Oh, I've been skating loads. It's so good. I'm like, right, okay. So as a result of that, I like I couldn't work for about two or three months with a broken leg, and then I started gigging again. Um, that was kind of towards the end of this kind of dark period. Because the great thing about this is for people who don't know that. I'm Everything has. Come yeah, everything's really everything's turned around. Everything's turned around. Well, that was it. I was like, that was the end of that was the end of 2012 and in the 2013. And I was like, thank God for that. At least everything's going to be all right now. I then developed an allergy to the metal that they used to fix my leg because I forgot to tell them that I'm allergic to nickel. And the, unless you tell them that, some of the drill bits that they can use to fix bone have nickel in them. Um, which normally isn't a problem apart from in like less than 1% of the population. I was, Bingo! Yeah, I was so full of morphine at the time when they went and asked me what I was allergic to. Completely forgot to mention that. Um, I have never forgotten since. <laughs> because I suddenly ended up with such a level of pain and swelling in my leg, in the bone, actually inside the bone. Um, that I couldn't walk more than about 20 or 30 paces um, at a time for just over a year. So I was almost unable to work for about 18 months. I earned £3,000 in the tax year between 2013 and 2014. Yeah, uh, it was just a difficult, it was so difficult, because that, like, once that happened, then it was like I needed a stick to get everywhere and I couldn't walk more than about 200 yards. And, and my life basically became, for most of that year, 
going from my bed to the couch and back again. It was just horrible, but Sarah and I, you know, we were together and it was great and we like really planning for the future and managed to keep, because like, throughout all of this, I always kept positive because I'm like, I, although I'm a depressive, I am also a po- I'm also an optimist, yeah. um, It's which people find really difficult to understand <laughs> how you can be both. And I'm like, no, it could be worse. You know, all yeah. the way through everything that happened to me, I remember people and saying to people, I'm just glad it happened to me rather than someone who couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Because I've dealt with enough shit in my life to be able to go, do you know what? Well, I, this is it. I mean, I kind of, I, I've often felt you are in many ways one of the strongest people I know. But all that perhaps you might on the surface appear to be frail because, you know, you've got mental health issues. I know you have uh, big issues of anxiety. Yeah. But I think, the fact that you manage those all well is a tribute to how strong you are as a person, oh, rather, rather than weakness. Well, that was it. Yeah, I had no idea until I, I recently started seeing a therapist and chatting with them about it. And there was a comment which went, "Well, you've had a hard life, haven't you?" And I went, "Oh God, I have, haven't I?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had a good life. Oh. <laughs> just I've managed to fit quite a lot into it, so you know, um, managed to fit more into my 37 years than most people have in their entire life. Yeah, yeah, I have, and I know that, and I'm happy yeah. with that, and I'm comfortable with that, and that's cool. So yeah, it was it was really tough. I ended up like on the verge of bankruptcy, and then got cast in Cucumber and Banana, like entirely out of the blue, like no intention because of you. And because of Matt Kershaw. <laughs> you and Matt Kershaw sent me, uh, te- sent me uh, messages at exactly the same time. I think they were within a minute of each other. Really? On my Facebook account saying, I did, I didn't know audition that. for this, audition for this, go for this. It was, and, it was so obviously you. I yeah, mean, yeah. It's well, like they'd written in a brief for you. Yeah. I mean, the character's nothing like you. Yeah, the character's nothing like you. But in terms of the brief for the actor. Yeah, yeah. Gobby Norton, a trans yeah. woman between the ages of 20 and 40. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I went for it, yeah, and like auditioned for it, and and got it within a week. And it it really it was literally it was literally that I was phoning up the uh, Citizens Advice Bureau for help to declare bankruptcy um, on a Tuesday morning, and then I went and looked in my went into my Facebook while I was sat in my bedroom crying, going, "Well, this is fucked," because like we were about to lose the house, we were um, over um, we were like six weeks behind with the rent. You know, you'd sent that, and I got in touch with them straight away, and. They got me in for an audition two days later. They called me back on the, over the weekend saying, can we give you an audition on Tuesday because it's a bank holiday weekend. Went in on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday, they phoned me up and said, you've got the job. Would you like to come in for the read-through on Friday? Did that, and then on Sunday, we started filming. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And From was... the outside looking in, it felt a lot like the final vindication scenes in a movie. Yeah, it, it really does. beautiful watch on the outside. It was, yeah, yeah. And I, and I, all the way through, I was going, when that happened, I was like, oh, God, this is so good. This make this this will make such a good turning point for the end of the first half of my biopic. (laughs) (laughs) This will be it. This will be it. Here I am. I've got, you know... I'm in a place that I'm in, that I'm enjoying, you know. Was that, like, again, and the other stuff that I mentioned in my show, we, we did, we got broken into the week before Christmas um, yeah, when so we were out buying a Christmas tree, um, which was just, that was one of the things, like, I, I talk about that in my show because, you know, that it all kind of helps to build towards that. I don't really talk about the really nice thing that happened, which was 
almost like It's a Wonderful Life in that Gia um, so. Milinovic went and set up um, a GoFundMe page and just got got like, enough money to re- to rebuy all the things that had been stolen like in a, in a previous 24 hours. It was amazing. Well, I think the thing is that the fact that you are who you are, you are proud of who you are, and you are well, I would consider you a transactor. So yeah, 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 yeah. But all of that makes you a villain in the eyes of a tiny proportion mm. of the population. I think you're very greatly loved by the people that know you. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really hope that that, that that was clear. Yeah, that was, and that really, really helped. Because there's just so much, like, the stuff that I talk about, about invisible, you know, we were chatting earlier about privilege and how it's invisible, and there's just so much that people don't see at all, and you are not able to see. I, yesterday I got chatting with uh, one of my friends, um, an, another comic, and she'd gone and posted something, and it was about a kid who was gender non-conforming, and their parents had gone and written this open letter to a store that was great and totally accepting. And they were going, oh, I hate this sort of stuff, this parent going, his parent doing this as if their virtue signalling sort of was the argument behind it and it was all of the stuff that I've seen a thousand times before and people just honestly don't get that because people don't need to see this sort of stuff they don't see that it is important that, that visibility Absolutely. on any level is important which like, is the, the very nature of the problem with privilege isn't it yeah it is and I was saying you know it's like when I was a kid growing up this would have meant so much to me if I'd have seen this yeah. somewhere because I grew up thinking I was all alone. I grew up thinking there was no one else in the world like me. And and that every single day throughout the whole of the media, I am told that I am less than because of this one thing. I am told that at best I am to be mocked and, and laughed at rather than laughed with. At worst, I am a predator who's trying to like, sleep with you or your children. Um, and if you fall in love with me, then that's pretty much a worst case scenario for you. Those, that is how the media is dealt with with who we are. And, and that people don't see that, and that people consistently having a go about this sort of stuff. I remember you telling me that you knew that you were a woman in the wrong body at four. Yeah. But you didn't think you should tell anyone because you thought they'd kill you. Yeah, yeah. I'm not but wonder if that your life and the thing that's got you to this point here, where, you know, I'm looking at you, you, you look really well. You're clearly in a great place in your career. Yeah. You seem to be a great, in a great place overall. Yeah, yeah. And I just wonder if that's kind of a sequence of sort of revelatory moments that have brought you to that. Yeah, it kind of has done. It, the, yeah, it's it, you never stop having them, and it's all sort of thing of recognising that if I look back to six months ago, or if I look back to a couple of weeks ago, even I can see the things that I thought and said and did, and how how pulled them together and, and sane I was. And I go, oh god, oh no, <laughs> oh no, I wasn't. Was I? <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, at the moment, I'm just coming out of. I, I, I had a really horrible bout of depression just before I went to Edinburgh, and a lot of that was down to the stress of going sure. to Edinburgh after having incredibly stressful. After having had such a bad experience last time, going, I never want to do that again and then going and doing it again and it turning out really great and then coming back to Manchester and September is always the time when I have my crisis of confidence in my career <laughs> I've done every year everyone does everyone does <laughs> yeah, yeah it is it's like, yeah, September's arrived oh god the worst one for me I remember going off to a gig with uh, Katie Mulgrew and uh, Andrew Ryan we were all in a car and we were going over to Beverly in Yorkshire and it was just one of those things where it turned up didn't have a great gig didn't really enjoy it and spent the entire time sat in the car with them talking about stuff and I was like this is the first time I've been in a car with comedians where I don't entirely relate to what they're talking about <laughs> oh god and I just felt I was like I don't want to do this anymore I really I can remember that being one of my worst ones and wow. Sam Gore was closing and he just sort of got to the point where he was starting to close gig and 
this gig was a bit of a weird gig anyway. I was emceeing. And he said, oh, there's a herbal Viagra machine in the toilet. What would be really funny? I dropped one of those an hour before I go on stage and then mentioned what's happened. And so he did that and mentioned that he'd done this an hour before I went on stage. And let's see how this happens. I'll start doing my set. Did all this stuff. Got to the end of his set. Nothing had happened. I was in the car on the way back going, oh, it's really good to see it. Like, he'd died on his arse. He'd like had a, oh, it was first, yes. first proper death that he'd had in, in, in his career, yes. I think. And like, as, a, as a closer, anyway. And uh, we were in the car. He was in his car going back to his place, and I was, um, and I was in the car, and I was saying, you know, to say that, like, as much as I like these guys, I'm just finding it really difficult to connect with them, and I just, God, I feel like that was terrible tonight. I don't think I should carry on with this. And he said, well, as bad as your night's going, at least you didn't drop a herbal bag or an hour before you went on stage, and then run out of petrol just after it kicked in. <laughs> 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 you ever tried knocking on someone's door? <laughs> ignore this! Ignore this! Ignore this! The breakfast club. I'm so pleased for you. I'm, I'm pleased for you. Well, I, think you might, I can see that you might be. Yeah, I've got a lot of work into this. I have put a lot of work into this. I'm faced more like. And do you know, I think, I think what's interesting is that people talk about the dichotomy between luck and work in our industry. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can have all the luck you want, but if you haven't put the work in before yeah. you get that break, it doesn't matter. You've still got to be you've still got to be good enough and have worked hard enough. A to have earned that break. Yeah. Even if it's completely fortuitous, to be able to actually take that break yeah. and do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think it's always, always the work. Well, yeah, that's it. It's, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's, you know, that's the thing. As I've said to people, you know, it's like people always go, oh, you're really talented. And they go, yeah, but I'm also really lucky. Mm -hmm. I, am, I am both. I know that I'm both. I work hard, I'm talented, and I'm lucky. Those are the three things that I've got on my side. Yep. Um, and I know this because before I got the look, no one gave a shit about the talent and the heart. Yes. Work. No one cared about it. Yep. Um, it required a certain... And that hasn't gone away or, or increased once no. you got the break. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yep. It's still, you know, will this lead on to something else? Right, okay, well, this might lead on to something else. Um, yeah, in my early career, I had three big chances. Three big breaks, potentially, that I wasn't ready for. And that I wasn't putting the work in for. And so they never came through. Mm -hmm. And I was just lucky that when this one came through, I was in the right place at the right time with the right level of experience and knew how to take, knew how to make, take advantage of yes, it. Yes, you see, I think we're probably presented with bazillions of opportunities that we don't even see. Yeah. Because we, we're not at that point in our career, uh, or we haven't done enough work mm. to be able to know, oh crap, this is this is yeah. a really big opportunity. And something I always think is that, something I found a huge surprise is, in our industry, and I've already had a successful career in advertising, and that is a steady progression. Therefore, I think, to anyone working outside of show business, yeah. you can only see two models, either they're alone with success, yeah. or oh, they must have worked and worked and worked and worked. Yeah. Um, and people assume that mo the majority of us is you get a break and it goes. Yeah. And I, that doesn't happen. You get a break and it's, it's like a level in the video game. Yeah. You fight to get the break, yeah. you get the break. The break is the boss fight. Yeah. 
and then the up. next level's harder. Yeah. <laughs> you level up. Yeah, 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 exactly. You level up, you go and increase your stats, you get to the yeah. point where you go, all oh, right, okay, right, I'm ready for this. Oh, yeah, Deathclaw comes out of nowhere yes. and strips you enough. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the exact same thing. It's, yeah, it, it's like the, the, the look that I've had this over the last couple of years, the, the fortune that I've had to be in, like, two of the biggest things, like, Cucumber and Banana and Tofu, which is just a fucking amazing one to be part of. You were so good in it, too. Yeah. It was, I thought it was interesting, because you have not acted no. at all before, had you? No. I've and never you, were, you were phenomenally good. You were absolutely convincing. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, as someone that knows you very well... Yeah, and it wasn't me, either. That was the other Exactly. Thing. It was nothing like you. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why it was like, oh, she's really good at this, isn't she? <laughs> because Helen couldn't be further removed from yeah, you. Yeah, no, not at all. I oh, know, no, exactly. And she, um, but she was utterly convinced that she was yeah. utterly a real person. Yeah, she was totally a real person. Yeah. Totally that. And it's that thing of, you know, again, it's what is appropriation? Well, appropriation is the fact that Jared Leto got an Oscar for his performance, which yes. was nowhere near as convincing as my performance. Yes. And uh, I didn't get nominated for anything. That's appropriation. <laughs> You've had no training as an actor. But you're instinctively a brilliant actor. I think you're really, really, really good. But you say I've had no training of it. I had 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> I had 22 years of method acting. <laughs> Do you know what you course, Of yeah. course, that's absolutely true. Of course, that's yeah. absolutely true. You must have spent that whole time disguising yourself as a bloke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that whole time attempting to be what I thought other people wanted me to be yeah. and so much so that it becomes second nature so you are able to do that you are able to go and put that across. that's interesting I hadn't even thought of that yeah. that's fascinating insight yeah. But, yeah. but yes but nobody so you know Jared Leto's two months yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the thing is that you know I would imagine that a lot of casting directors yeah they just look at the boxes that you're ticking mm-hmm. rather than necessarily can this person yeah. bring something to this role. And I think yeah. there are loads and loads of yeah, fabulous and roles you could do yeah. which don't depend on you being trans. No, and that's why that's why I'm really grateful for Andy Pryor, who is like the best casting director in the business. If you look at the stuff that he casts, like, like he does he does Doctor Who and he mm-hmm. is, uh, he's done pretty much every big drama right the way back to train spotting. Oh really? Yeah, he cast that and you just look through it and you go. I mean right, look right. at that the casting yeah. is incredible. Yeah, and you look at what you look at the things that he's cast, uh, him and Nina Gold are like the two big ones. And um yeah, and and his he was the one who cast me for Doctor Who, he was the one who got me in for that and just went you know, whenever I chat, because we're good friends now, which is, you know, it's, it's an, again one of those things that I'm just like, really? I get to be friends, I get to be friends with these people whose oh, names I recognise from everywhere. This is one of the weirdest things I think about our business, is kind of the fact that I've ended up with friends, because I came to this business, I mean, I don't know, you, you, you did it relatively late, didn't yeah. you? You would have been, what, late 20s? Uh, I was, no, I was, I was early to mid 20s when I started. Early to mid 20s, so not even that yeah. late, really. Whereas I came to this very, very late, you know, I came to this particularly kind of the comedy set because I've been a performer full-time for 10 years but yeah. I've only really been playing the, the circuit six? six something like yeah. that yeah, uh, I, yeah first became, I first became aware of you about six years ago yeah uh, kind of so which kind of put me in a weird position because I sort of jumped a lot of cues because I already had kind of the stage chops yeah. and stuff I just didn't necessarily have those stuff but playing the comedy circuit what blows my mind is I've been a huge comedy fan for, for years and People have grown up as sort of big fans of yeah. well, friends. Uh, people like Al Marie chatting, you know. Again, yeah, yeah. Al's been a tremendous help. Yeah, he's really good. I came to see my show. Uh, that's how I first. Oh, well, I met him backstage in Edinburgh. Yeah. He, we were both, both in a backstage area at the Assembly Gardens. Yeah. He was going off to do one show, I was going off to do the other. And we just started chatting. And he asked about my show and went, 
Mark Hill would love that. Yeah. And he came to see my show, and that would have made sense. It's oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's it. I, yeah. I got chatting to him on Twitter and that, and last year, it was just over a year ago, when I went, actually, I am going to go back to Edinburgh and do this again at the behest of my agent. Um, and I got in touch with him and went, you're the only person I know who I can ask this of and know that I will get an almost definitive answer. How do you think I should go about <laughs> of all the people I know, you are the king of the Edinburgh show. You yes. are the king of the Edinburgh hour. He's, he's done quite well. <laughs> he's done quite well, though. Like, how, how would you go about it? And he said, just make sure that by March you've got an hour and 20 yeah. and then cut back, try and get to 50 minutes by yeah. the beginning of July. And and that's exactly what I did. And that's why my show... It worked really well yeah, for you. Yeah, it did. Brilliant. It did. And, you know, I'm trying to do the same thing again this year. I'm just like, I'm currently also employing some of Frankie Boyle's advice, which is to write three completed jokes every day that's excellent advice yeah, you sit but down. then he's a very prolific writer too yeah, so, he, is, yeah. he is so you sit down and you write so and you go well I can come up with three funny things on the course of the but day but that's not necessarily three completed jokes yeah and so you do that and then you go and do them at a new material I, I, open, I open a bottle of, a bottle of um, champagne and have a cigar when I manage a completed joke <laughs> Release, release a, 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 release a basket of white doves. <laughs> the rest of this week, off. yeah, um, yeah, and it's just getting myself into that, get myself into that mental position to do the last, um, to do the Edinburgh show that I did last year was treating it as a nine to five job. And you have to do it. Like so, that. It's so bizarre that what we do is actually. It doesn't feel like it should be a night to five job. It yeah. feels, for me, I don't know about you, when, when I'm working, I work in one or two states. I either work in the, oh, I've got to go and do a gig tonight, then. so that, that's today's work done. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm constantly working. I, I, I can't, and it's, it's kind of, I either go through a stage of like, you know, three months where, you know, literally my, my girlfriend is dragging me up to bed at three in the morning going, you have to sleep. Yeah. Because I'm kind of solidly working. That's the bipolar, or, isn't it? Or I'm, yeah, absolutely the bipolar. I'm doing nothing. All I've done is describe my mental illness. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what you've just done there. I'm sitting there listening, going, yeah. yeah. Like, well, Obviously, on, Siegel. When are we going to move away from that? Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, 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 I'm very similar to that. And what I've learned over this last year is how to do it in a... In a um, in a, in a useful way, in a way that's not damaging to me, in a way that's like, right, okay, I get up in the morning and I set myself a time scale and I give myself a structured day. So, oh, what I give for a structured day is the know. only thing I miss about having a proper job. I know, because I, mean, I, I had a proper job for like 20 years. Yeah, I, I, I had 14 proper jobs for <laughs> one year. Um, uh, <laughs> I, what, what I do now is I tend to get up at around about 9, 9, 9.30, I wake up, spend about 20 minutes just getting my head together, getting getting whatever's like going on just ready meditating ready to face the rest of the day deal with all the stuff and remembering that I am a, a recovering drug addict and alcoholic and that my goal for the day is whatever else happens is to get back into that bed at the end of the day having not had any drink or drugs yes and to go right okay today I'm just going to do the things that I can I'm going to deal with the things as they're put in front of me I'm not going to expect too much of myself I'm going to deal with each thing as it comes up and try not to put things off um, because if I put them off, they'll be rattling around at the back of my mind. I need to deal with them straight away. And then I do that, I get up, I go downstairs, I open whatever post is on the mat immediately and look at it, no matter how much anxiety it fills me with. And then, oh, right, okay. And then if, it needs, if it's a bill that needs paying, that gets added to the bottom of today's to-do list. And I make a to-do list and 
have a coffee. So ordered. And then at 10.30 in the morning, I sit and I start going through my emails and start writing my emails and, and stuff. And I'll, I've got Twitter on in the background, so I'm constantly going back mm-hmm. to that and looking at stuff and going, right, okay, and just letting the jokes sort of formulate through my head. Yeah. And what I've started doing now is favouriting jokes that I have done that I think, oh, there's legs in that, I can go on stage. That's a good idea, because I do that as well. I think a lot of acts do. Yeah. Try out an idea, not necessarily a fully yeah. formed yeah. Act, but yeah. you know, an idea, try it out on social media, see if it bites. Yeah, a lot of my, and, and what I've learned is, if it gets five retweets, and that's a joke that, if it's a joke that I think is really good, and it gets five retweets. Oh, that's a blinder. Then that is a joke that needs to be put on the whiteboard and yep. worked into material. But if I, it's a joke that I think is really good, and it gets over a hundred retweets, that needs throwing away. Oh, really? Because that is no good. That will not work. That is That specific. won't work in a club. Yeah, that won't work in a club. Specific to that medium. Yes, yeah, that's interesting for me. Because I have gags. So there are, there are gags that I would just, there are things that I've just put on Facebook because yeah. I think they're on yeah. Twitter because I think they're funny yeah. for that medium. Yeah. But what's interesting is there is stuff that will work really well on Twitter but not on Facebook yeah. and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. And I find that with that, and partly it's down to the fact that, as, as Brendan said in that article, uh, Brendan Burns said in that article on Shortle about me getting cans, which is when you tell a joke, sometimes it, when you write a joke in that medium, sometimes it's not funny because the person who's reading it has got terrible timing. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, absolutely. They don't know, they don't know how to read the joke. <laughs> and, and that is an issue. That is an issue with the audience. And yeah, and so, and often I will go, right. Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Am I right in sort of thinking that the 12-step program is, it's something you, you, you live yeah. rather than, yeah? Yeah, it is. It's something that you live. And a lot of people I know who are, who are as rationalist as I am, have a lot mm-hmm. of problems with it just because, because you have to accept the authority of a suit of a higher power. Power. Yeah. yeah. However, you can be you can be doing twelve step recovery and be an atheist. There is no, no which no. I am, um, and I have been successfully for ten years. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, <laughs> from a rationalist perspective, it's the step three, which is uh, handing your will and your life over to. Uh, Accepting that you can't do it without the without the help of a higher power is just accepting that you are not in control oh, yeah. of the world around you. You can only control your reactions to things and how you think and feel about things. You can't even particularly control how you feel about things. You can control how you think about things, and that helps to affect how you feel about things. And it's just about putting your head into that mindset. So it's a lot like some of the principal tenets of a cognitive behaviour therapy yeah, and, it is. and mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's yeah. basically a cross between the two of those things. Yeah. And the thing that I find really helpful for that is going to meetings and sitting there and just being able to talk about... You know when you go on Facebook, right, and you go... Ah, and you unload like a big mind fart uh-huh. onto the thing, and then people start giving you advice, and you go, I don't want advice. No, no, I just want to get this out. I just want to get this off my chest. Yeah. And that's what I find great about yeah. AA meetings. One of my favourite moments was like, and when I set this up, you're going to be completely going, How was this one of your favourite moments? But one of my favourite moments in an AA meeting um, happened with a guy who's now sadly no longer with us. He had a heart attack and died, he was in his late 50s. And he was someone who had almost no self-awareness. Lovely guy. I, I absolutely loved him to pieces. And he turned up one day wearing black gloves, black rubber gloves, and made a big show of the fact that he was wearing these black latex gloves. And sat there on his phone in the middle of the meeting, all this sort of stuff doing that. 
and came his turn to share and says, you might have noticed I'm wearing black. <laughs> but this is because I've decided I want to become a tattoo artist. And I thought, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to wear these. So I better get used to wearing them and, until I can do everything with them That's and then all. do that. And he did this big, it's like a 20 minute show about how he decided to do this and how, you know, this is part of his obsessional mind being, being an addict. And he got to the end of it and finished, sort of sat there. Then went back to dicking about on his phone playing like playing Candy Crush or whatever. And then I shared, and it was in that period of time, a couple of weeks after Linda had found out that she had cancer, and just yeah. one of my friends was uh, just after one of my friends had died, and things were going really bad. And I was like, I just bumped into my ex, and she'd been beaten up by her girlfriend, and like everything was everything was horrible. And I was just sort of sat there going, and she started drinking again, and like and there's nothing I can do about that. I've just got to accept that I'm powerless over that. And that me worrying about it isn't going to do anything. I was just, in, I was just ended up in tears, sort of talking about this, and talking about the whole relationship with her, and, and how difficult it was to see, and having to get to that level of acceptance about doing what I can, but not going and putting myself too far into that situation because it wouldn't do me any good and it wouldn't help her. And I finished, and uh, he just leaned over and went, "I don't think you should be sharing about that here." <laughs> Diarist meeting or something. I have no idea. Well, yeah, that's and that is basically it. It's that thing of you start off, you recognise that you've got a problem. You then recognise that you have no power over over it. You are. It is a compulsion. It is. It is a form of OCD. It is a compulsion to drink. The second you have your first drink, then it sets up that compulsion, and you can't stop yourself. And it's the same thing with drugs. You take the first one, and then that's it. It's the first one that does the damage. Step three is uh, recognizing, is basically accepting that you are not the most powerful being in the universe. And that if you accept that and go, do you know what, I am, I am not going to try and control everything in my life. I'm just going to let things that don't concern me carry on. Give now, me the strength to... Uh, that's, that's, no, that's, that's, the, that's the serenity prayer which we okay. at the end of the meeting. Um, which is uh, granting the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. Um, and that's essentially that's what it is in its most concentrated form. That's that is all it is in a single sentence. That's all it is. It's it's rec- trying to recognise what you can and can't control, and, and dealing with those things, and dealing with the obsessive head, and dealing with the, the codependency that comes along with that. And the, yeah. um, I think it's it's interesting. I think I think addiction is. Now starting to become accepted as as an illness. Yeah, it clearly is. Yeah, it is. Um, no one chooses to get addicted. Most people think when you say you're a drug addict, they go, "Oh, so what drugs were you addicted to?" And you go, "Yeah, that was that. That's just a symptom." Yeah. <laughs> Whichever drug it is, that is a symptom. It's irrelevant. It it's irrelevant. Yeah. I, I have an addictive personality. If I do something which I find pleasurable, I'll, I'll keep doing. I will it. keep doing it until it is no longer pleasurable. And then I will keep doing it in case it gets pleasurable again. Mm-hmm. And I will not be able to control myself from doing that. I will be compelled to do it again and again and again, no matter what damage it causes me and the people around me who I love. One of the things that, that happens when you if you if you go through the 12 steps like I did is that you end up hanging out with other people who are in a similar position to you. Because the other thing is, suddenly you've stopped drinking, you've stopped taking drugs, your entire social network will have been built around that because you go and hang out with people who people do, drugs, do and drugs and drink. Yes. Yeah, in exactly the same way that you do to disguise the fact that anything you're doing is out of the ordinary. Yes. Um, 
and it's not damaging, it's just, you know, we're a bit cool and we're a bit different. Can you imagine all those squares who aren't doing this sort of thing? God, look at them poor bastards getting up in the morning and going off to do their nine to five job yeah. while we're sat here on this park bench with our special group. Losers. Um, you know, you, this is a natural instinct in humans uh, to do that. And, and so suddenly you end up in this situation where you don't have any friends who you suddenly go, oh, well, none of my friends uh, want to hang out with me anymore because, because I'm not doing the things they're doing. I'm not doing the things that they're doing. Uh, I stopped getting invited to various different places and so you end up with this nice circle of friends that you can actually talk to and you talk to about actual stuff and you share what's going on in your head, you go and share your deepest, darkest thoughts and it's not in that Scientology way of, no. okay, now you have now you have blackmail material to use against me, it's that thing of recognising that if you are honest about your secrets with someone else who is also honest to you about their secrets then you suddenly find that the stuff that you thought you were crazy and you were the only person who thought and that you were a terrible, awful human being quite, quite common. It's totally normal. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, reasonably normal. So there you go. We're all normal after all. Who knew? This was a really difficult episode to edit down just because, as I think you can tell, Beth and I know each other so well. We really enjoy each other's company and the entire breakfast actually lasted over two and a half hours. I really hope you enjoyed that. You can check out more information about Beth on my website. Coming up next week, I have breakfast with the wonderful Susan Cowman, which was an absolute treat, an absolute delight. So please subscribe, write a lovely five-star review about the podcast on iTunes. Other podcast providers are available. And I hope to see you next week. Thanks ever so much for listening to The Breakfast Club.